0: stress when it comes. Here are three ways stress does your mind and body good. One, stress correlates to a lower risk of premature death. Two, stress boosts the production of neurons that may improve performance. And three, bursts of stress may strengthen the immune system. So the next time you feel stressed for an upcoming paper or exam, don't try to fend it off. Instead, Embrace stress as your body's natural preparation to complete your upcoming challenge.
1: Good luck.
2: Me to you, to love in blue. I lived with him on Montague Street, a basement down the stairs. There was music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. Then he started into dealing with slaves and something inside of him died. She had to sell everything she owned and froze up inside. And when it finally the bottom fell out, I became withdraw. The only thing I knew how to do was to keep on keeping on like a blur that flew. Trying to love you blue. We
0: are revolution on the air. My name is Christopher Walkup. My name is Michael Brennan. And our first guest today is Kaylee Baker. She is a senior government and politics and English double major and the vice president of College Democrats at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we're happy to have you. So let's start off with what College Democrats is getting up to this semester and this year. We are obviously at a very pivotal point in our American democracy. We have some exciting elections coming up just next week in cities across Maryland like Gaithersburg, like College Park, and elections in Virginia and New Jersey, and of course, a ton of seats are up for grabs in Maryland in 2018. So what are college Democrats doing uh, between now and 2018 to address some of those elections and and just do other fun things? What are you guys up to?
3: Yeah, so I think you hit on something that we're really trying to focus on this year, and that's the off-year elections for 2017. And so we've been doing some canvassing in Northern Virginia to try and turn out the vote for Ralph Northam and also getting students aware and registered to vote for College Park City Council elections. And just beyond that, we recently had a really good debate with college Republicans about some issue-oriented things hosted by the wonderful Maryland Discourse. And shaping up for next semester, we really want to turn to the gubernatorial race here in Maryland, because there are so many Democratic candidates running in the primary. And I think we're going to have to put forward a really strong candidate to take on Larry Hogan, just because he's done so little that when you don't do so much, it's hard to have a low (laughs) approval rating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, very, very well said. And what can students do to get involved? Do you have regular meetings? Uh, How can can they plug in to all these exciting, exciting actions that you guys are taking? So
3: definitely, I encourage everyone to like College Democrats on Facebook. Definitely the easiest way to get a hold of us. But we have meetings every other Tuesday in tidings from 7 to 8 p.m. So come hang out with us. I promise we're really cool.
0: So you talked a little bit about the city of College Park elections. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the candidates? I know this is one of, one of if not the most competitive elections that College Park has had in, it is, it is. in recent memory. Uh, could you talk about, for instance, the race for mayor and Patrick Wohan and his, and his contenders?
3: Yeah, so the election is coming up this week for the College Park mayoral race. And like you said, it's the most contested mayoral election in recent history. And I think one of the really unfortunate things, while it's great to see contested elections, is based on a lot of the debates, it seems that all of his competitors came out after the city council attempted to put forward the non-citizen voting measure, which ultimately failed because of not a lack of votes, but... Them not knowing their own rules in terms of how many people could vote, which is hugely disappointing. But it's just upsetting to know that a lot of people turned out to run for mayor because they didn't want non citizens to be able to vote in their city. But I'm personally a supporter of Mayor Wohan. I've worked with him through sustainability committee through the university. So I think he's been particularly supportive of the student body. And I think, full disclosure, I'm not registered to vote in Prince George's County. I stayed registered to vote at home just because I wanted to be able to vote in my school board elections, which is important to me. But I think for those that did choose to register with their college address, There are so many students in the College Park area, and they're not really treated as permanent residents because we get cycled through, so there isn't really attention to the issues that we need to be building up the greater College Park area to make us a really desirable college town. And I think Patrick O'Han has shown that he's the best of the candidates that we have to really support the College Park area and consider students fairly, because even just campus is so gerrymandered in terms of who your city councilman is. Like, it's purposely divided apart.
4: Right. So there was the um, debate on Monday on campus and we're in the Edward St. John Center. Um, so um, I think that you brought up a pretty important issue in terms of these mayoral candidates or just mayors in general throughout College Park's history treating the student body as kind of like a cycled through population rather than a long term population. And I think that there's some merit to that. But I do think that you have to treat the student body as a, as a community in its own right, since we, you know, this, this is the place where a lot of people are going to be spending their time, their money, and investing themselves in for a good period of their lives. So um, what, what issues do you think in particular, you mentioned sustainability, um, what issues do you think uh, Mayor Wohan in his term thus far has uh, spoken to those student interests?
3: Uh, Well, for me personally, like I said, sustainability, I think he's the most accessible on those issues. And I know he's been such a great partner in one of our initiatives to get the bars to start recycling and hold them more accountable for that. And also just treating College Park as I understand that there are other permanent residents here that clearly aren't students and don't go to the university, but also really helping rejuvenate Route 1 to make it not just the food desert with a couple pizza places here and there. Mm -hmm. I think there's some investment there that needs to be made.
4: So, yeah, let's let's turn now to, we were talking about the election, the, just for people's reference, the election in College Park is Tuesday in three days, so make sure you get out and vote if you're registered in College Park or Virginia or New Jersey. Um, but let's look at um, 2018. So, you were talking a little bit about the importance of the governor's race. Um, we're going to be facing uphill battle in Congress, trying not to lose Senate seats, hopefully flipping some of the house to squeeze the gop majority but on the state level um just from your personal opinion you don't don't have to speak for college democrats as a whole but do you have anyone you've been interested in what's been like uh piquing your interest in the governor's race and what are some issues do do you think that um democrats would be smart to focus on when going up against larry hogan
3: well, it is pretty early, but I think my early favorite is, I'm sure I'm going to butcher her name, so I apologize, but <laughs> Krish Varanyasa. Yeah, I think she's pretty, I know she's not pulling as strongly as someone like Russia and Baker, but I think she's definitely shaping up to be a contender, and I hope she does meet the eligibility requirements to run, that they find her eligible, because right. she had a confusing moment where she was registered in Maryland and D.C. because she was a policy advisor to former First Lady Michelle Obama. But I think she's speaking to some really interesting issues in terms of education, and keeping Maryland schools really strong. And she seems to be pretty invested in preserving communities like undocumented communities that we have here in Maryland. And just she, she seems more invested in kind of protecting the communities that Trump has been attacking. And I think that's something that we really need to hold down on. And of course, it also relates to me of this is the first time in a while Maryland has not sent a woman to their federal as a federal representative. So to have a woman governor, I think would speak a lot to the importance of that.
0: And to that point, one of the really exciting things about this upcoming governor's race is that not only is this the first time in recent history that we don't have a female member of our congressional delegation, but at no point in Maryland's history have we had a governor who is not a white man. And on the Democratic side, just about all of the most serious contenders are looking to not be white men. So there's a real chance to to have some degree of more minority representation or traditionally marginalized group representation. Uh, This is a question that we were talking about a little bit beforehand, but I was wondering on the subject of issues that Democrats should be focusing on. Is it your view that Democrats should be moving towards the center to some degree after this recent election or moving further to the left? There's two lines of thought saying there, you know, one says there are people in the middle. We can convince them if we just let go of some of these divisive social issues. And then Mm -hmm. other people who are adopting a more if if we build it, they will come approach Uh, doubling down on single payer health care, on racial, economic and environmental justice. Where do you think the party's future lies? Where do you think more electoral success can be had?
3: Well, I think The question you ask is just basically the problem that the Democratic Party is going to be facing in the upcoming election. It's my personal opinion that if you lose voters in the Rust Belt, that you absolutely do not turn your back on people that have historically strongly supported the Democratic Party. It's, I think, morally unacceptable to turn a blind eye to a lot of marginalized communities and decide that you can dismiss issues that become core to the party platform just to appeal to a centrist voter. And that's not to say that people in the middle can't, find a place within the democratic party because if those are the beliefs you hold and you want to vote for democrats i think that's phenomenal and i think there's always going to be the place to open up that dialogue for everybody but where the democratic party is turning in terms of endorsing candidates that are pro-life i just don't think that's an acceptable move because that for me is a fundamental issue of why i'm a democrat so if the democratic party turns their back on that like i don't know who my party is
4: i think that you're speaking to a a good issue there at that there's there's the the mindset that some people think you have to move towards the center to appeal to these Rust Belt voters, or you know try to try to flip people who are your traditional Republicans to who are just disgusted by Trump and mm-hmm. GOP as it stands or whatever. The
0: Panera voters is they're um. called. Is that <laughs> the Panera? I've never voters. heard that before. Yeah, it's like the suburban white voters that voted for um. Romney, but mm. oh, it's my, my mom. Vote. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
4: Um, I'm just, what a term, <laughs> Panera voters. On um, Red love
0: Bulls. Wait, can we say that? Uh-oh. Yeah, we can say. <laughs> okay, it. Panera,
4: Panera's fine. Whatever. Um, so, um, but I I do think that instead of looking at the political spectrum as a line where you have to either move to the right mm-hmm. or to the left, I do think that when we're trying to appeal as Democrats to say the like we're going to use the white working class example that's kind of talked to death, and I don't really like referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, monolithic groups because I don't think that really exists but if we're going to do it um, the the white working class of Ohio Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania that is going to be crucial for 2020 and in 2018 when we're trying to flip some house seats I don't think I agree with you I don't think the answer is to compromise on issues of like racial justice or like immigrants rights or uh, women's rights or anything like that I think in my opinion the um, the, the, the way to do it is to speak to the issues that affect, you know, that you can't leave anybody behind in terms of um, in terms of our policies going forward because I think that the issue – I think I brought this up on the last show we had where um, I was at the People's Summit over the summer and Van Jones was giving a speech and one thing that stuck out to me was when he was talking – when he, he was saying – over the past thirty years, the life expectancy, like infant mortality, all of the the general measurements of of um, how how a demographic is improving over time, they're all in, in all demographics, women, um, people of color, uh, you know, just any 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 demographic you look at, they they're all on the rise over the past thirty years. But the one that actually has been going down, it's the first generation of people where. Um, like life expectancy and all that is lower than the previous mm-hmm. generation are rural white men. And I think that the the issue of moving to the center in order to appease to those people isn't getting at why they're turning to the white nationalists, the the Trump-esque like, uh, brand of politics, because I don't think that mm-hmm. we're actually answering anything to, for those people who are in these communities where there used to be union jobs and then they, they all left because of trade deals. And then all the there's no jobs there anymore. And then there's opioid epidemics and it doesn't look like there's any kind of positive future. And I think that just compromising on our values for the sake of centrism doesn't really make any sense.
3: It's, yeah, it's I definitely thing. think that's a wonderful point because I think so frequently anymore, there's a lot of dialogue saying of politicians saying like oh like yeah we need to support all these communities that are under attack but let's not forget about economic issues let's not forget about those bread and butter issues as if like civil rights is not a bread and butter yeah. issue and i think one interesting i don't even remember where i read it but it was a voter it was a woman that ended up voting for donald trump over hillary clinton in the general and she said i think hillary really failed to she appealed to minorities and she appealed to women but she really failed to speak to ordinary americans so i think a lot of times <laughs> There's a spectrum of racism and that it's really easy to see in Charlottesville, but there's also this very quite nuance to assuming that these other communities aren't are not ordinary American. Americans. Yeah,
0: that's like, what. And there was, so I was canvassing earlier today in Gaithersburg, and I was talking to this woman about city issues up there in Montgomery County. And Gaithersburg is now one of, if not the most diverse cities in America. It is about a third Hispanic, about a third white, about a third African American.
3: That's where I was born actually. Yeah, was born, no, yeah. It's
0: it's an amazing diverse city. And this woman has lived there for the last forty two years and she said, This isn't my city anymore. This is a white woman. Wow. And I just took a step back because I think I think Trump was buoyed to victory by a combination of some economic anxiety and legitimate concerns about you know, the opioid epidemic and losing manufacturing jobs. I don't think he had the solution to that, but somehow he was able to appeal to those economic concerns more. But there, we can't, we also can't ignore the fact that there are a bunch of people who are doing fine economically who are just... There's a
3: core prejudice there that really assisted, not to negate the issues of middle-class white working Americans that are struggling in the economy under Obama. Like I'm sure a lot of people had their reasons, but I think you can't just there's you can't discredit like that discrimination was truly a factor
0: yeah and that i i was just shell-shocked for the next two hours knocking on doors i kept coming i kept coming back to that because i think a lot obviously i'm a white person in case you guys listening did not know and i do not think that that woman would have felt comfortable saying that to anyone who didn't look like me. Uh, like assumes. there's kind of this almost secret language between white people where it's uh, like I've talked to people about this. I talked to a Lyft driver who <laughs> people get into his car that are white and they're like, oh, thank goodness. It's a white Lyft driver. Right. And they expect the white guy who's driving them to like laugh about right and be like yeah we're we're white we're in this together and i feel like she this woman who i was talking to kind of expected me to to reciprocate and be like yeah gaithersburg like i don't recognize it from the good old majority white days and it is just bizarre to be on the outside of that kind of part of the cultural discourse because i think there are i'm going on a huge tangent but i think it is concerning that there are there are a lot of things that a lot of white people feel when it comes to cultural anxiety and they're they're only talking about that with other white people and it just makes the problem Mm -hmm. worse and makes these communities more insular and makes them more
3: Yeah. Well to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, Mike, about kind of appealing to those voters in more rural places that did turn to Trump for economic insecurities I think the Democrats to pull these people in have a responsibility not to abandon other bases and voters but to really illustrate to these voters and these people that a lot of programs that we support like if they're worried about health and like lowered life expectancy I think something like universal health care is right. should really be touching to those communities and I think it hits on the idea of people voting against their own self-interest based on core rhetorics based on core fears so I think it It's about not not redoing, but repackaging the way a lot of these programs get sold to some people that may already carry a Republican bias against something like Obamacare, even if you want to go as far to say single payer, but to really show the benefits and the economic benefits that Democrats can bring to people. Because I don't know where along the way that the message got sent that Democrats are somehow bad for the economy, because most evidence is all to the contrary.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I... I I'm just very stressed about the state of American politics. Oh, <laughs> you man. don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> That's how every episode ends. Yeah, it's just a bunch of
4: like. Rah, rah. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with your point. I think that something like single payer or, um, you know,
3: even if you want to keep it employer-based insurance, like just something, even like Obamacare was. To yeah,
4: that. I think the the issue that Democrats fail on fundamentally, and we're gonna get at this with our next guest, with uh, Jack Flowers. Um, um, is that Democrats do not provide a genuine message that they are for working people over the the people who donate to them. And I think that's just the fundamental failure of the Democratic Party as it stands, because I don't think as far so this gets a, I think let, let's pivot to um, the news that happened this week in terms of Russia investigation and the the Donna Brazile article that came out. So I'm going to outline it a little bit before we jump into it. So Donna Brazile was the interim DNC chair after Debbie Wasserman Schultz resigned uh, like the day before the Democratic convention last year uh, where Hillary was nominated. Brazil wrote a political article detailing her hesitations with the relationship between the DNC and the Clinton campaign. So specifically... And I think I'm getting this right, but you can correct me if I'm wrong on these details. Hillary for America, her campaign arm, agreed to fundraise $1.2 million for the DNC through the Hillary Victory Fund in exchange for the standard presidential campaign assets. And But the controversy comes as the campaign agreed to additional debt relief for the DNC since it was $24 million in debt in exchange for Clinton's campaign being able to nominate the communications, technology, data analytics research personnel within the DNC, which is something that wasn't offered to any other campaign. But this gets at, I think the, this is one piece of the larger issue of the monolithic 2016 that we keep, everyone keeps referring to, even though we're more than, almost more than a year out at this point. Um, Because also on Monday there was the issue of Manafort and Gates getting indicted by Mueller and um you know the the story of russian interference it kind of it seems to be significantly i think unfolded at this point i think that there's a lot of um information out there that we can that there's not even speculation at this point about what was going on or like what we can discuss about it um because so that they had access to we we know the leaks in october last year were the internal communications between the DNC. And they were released at strategic points within the 2016 campaign to damage the Democratic Party, to help Donald Trump get elected. And um, we know that there was... Uh, the question is how far Trump's team coordinated with Russian intelligence. Um, and I'll refrain from speculating further, but uh, George Papadopoulos earlier this week, it came out, he pled guilty Um in early in October to lying to the FBI about this when he was a, a foreign policy advisor for Trump. And then Carter Page testified on Thursday in front of the House Intelligence Committee that he, uh, about his July 2016 meeting with Russian, official, R- Russian officials, um, with info pertinent to Trump's campaign. So he went to Russia in July, met with people, lied about it, came out in an email that he did do it. And he was talking to the campaign about how they had information. So the, all this info is coming out slowly, drip, 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 whatever. But I think that it's a lot of info and it's hard for people to figure it out. So it all just comes across as this big like witch hunt conspiracy theory. But my my question for you is, um, as a representative of young Democrats here on campus, what would you like to see within the party uh, change in terms of transparency organizational structure, strategy, the way we operate as a party at large. If these questions are too lofty, that's okay. You can just back off of it if you feel like
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, obviously I can't speak for all Democrats on campus. I don't really think that's fair. And I personally don't know so much about the internal rules and workings of the DNC like I think a lot of people as do as well so I think that speaks to the bigger issue of transparency in our government because we're so linked in with all this available technology to witness and kind of monitor our government in a way that hasn't been offered to us in the past and I think with that comes the unearthing of a lot of scandals like this one in particular and it's about I think kind of rebuilding that trust because I think it's really productive for no one, no no matter what faction of the Democratic Party you consider yourself to be a part of, how left you consider yourself. I don't think that matters. I think if you lack a key trust in the people that you want to be representing you, that fails voters at all levels, which is disappointing. And then to add on to that, I think it's also disappointing how even despite being the one in the situation that does not hold elective o- elected office, that a lot of the news is still pivoting to Hillary Clinton in terms of a way to deflect against donald trump not to say that oh this needs to be fully brushed onto the rug because i think that's inappropriate but i think there's like you hinted at some very serious allegations in terms of meddling with an election that people have pled guilty to or like donald trump jr admitted to doing and saying well no i just didn't do this and it wasn't illegal but i did it <laughs> so i think it's kind of pivoting away from a lot of trump's failures and faults at an illegal level
0: definitely I don't know. I, gosh, I feel like I'm going to go on a diatribe again, and I don't actually want to do that. But speaking of, speaking of ways to transform the party, one, the, the most shocking parts of the, mo, the recent DNC allegations to me uh, are the revelation that, or the reinforcement of the idea that I think two people really failed the democratic party at a national level one of them is obviously debbie wasserman schultz did i think an objectively terrible job running the democratic national committee but i think obama also has some of the blame to bear like you don't have a party that's 24 million dollars in debt without some kind of failure of leadership on the national level and i think this gets back to the idea that we were talking about earlier of why why don't people in the rust belt in ohio michigan pennsylvania wisconsin why don't they believe in the democratic party anymore and part of it is just because the democratic party has retreated from those areas we have this election coming up in virginia next week and it's my understanding that in 2013 less than 40 democrats ran for over 100 seats in the state house of delegates now i think we have something somewhere over 50 which is great maybe maybe 60 But it speaks to changes needing to be done in the Democratic Party, not just in terms of transparency, which is so important, but also the Democrats just need to show up. We need to show up in communities of color, obviously, but we also need to show up in we need to show up across the country. We need to show up in Virginia and Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, because I think the fact that so many so many people who voted for Donald Trump probably didn't even have a choice to vote for. Democrats farther down the ticket speaks to fundamental problems structurally with the Democratic Party that we're going to need to reform going forward.
2: Yeah,
3: well, I think that's definitely true. I think after 2012, Obama did definitely take a dip in terms of the fundraising that he did for the Democratic Party, which obviously manifested in literal debt. And (laughs) um, I think Debbie Wasserman Schultz kind of took the flack that she deserved in terms of not being such an effective fundraiser and organizing the party in... A way that really benefits because i think it's being framed in such a way that it's still bernie versus hillary which i think like i said really does no one good like i don't think there's any benefit to reliving a contentious primary election Definitely. that frankly like was won by many many votes like i don't think that's effective because who it damages are democrats down the ballot so when there isn't the money there yeah it, certain individual candidates, especially running for president, like you're either going to have that small donor matching that Bernie did so effectively, which I think really needs to get spread more, or Clinton, who really has such a really strong economic base that she can have the money to do that campaign. But it's those people running down the ballot for small races, for delegate. Those are the people that aren't going to get the attention. Like even just with special elections recently in Georgia, it's very interesting to see like where the Democrats are funneling a lot of this money and why maybe aren't we putting so much into this Virginia election.
0: Yeah.
4: Uh, We're going to have to call it there. Thank you for joining us, Kaylee.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
4: Of course. Um, We're going to take a little break, and then we're going to jump to our contrasting interview with Jack Flowers, um, who is helping start up the Prince George's Green Party. So we'll be right back.
1: When I was a little boy When I was just a boy And the devil called my name When I was just a boy I say now who do Who do you think you're fooling When I was just a boy I'm a consecrated boy I'm a singer in a holy choir Oh my mama loves me She loves me she get down on her knees and hugs me, oh, and she loves me like a rock. Rocks me like the rock of ages, and she loves me, yeah. Love me, love me, love me, love me. When I was grown to be a man, I was grown to be a man, when the devil call my name, I say now who do? Who do you think you're fooling I'm a consummated man yeah. I can catch a little purity Whoa, my mama loves me She loves me She get down on her knees and she hugs me Oh, and she loves me like a rock Rocks me like the rock of ages And she loves me Love me, love me, love me, love me And if I was a president And the Congress call my name When I say now who do Who do you think you're fooling I got the presidential seal I'm up on the presidential podium Well, my mama loves me she loves me. She get down on her knees and she hugs me. Oh, and she loves me like a rock. Rocks me like the rock of ages. And she loves me, yeah. She loves me, love me, love me, love me. I'm in the kingdom of the Lord, yeah. When the devil calls my name, yeah. I say now, baby, who do you think you're fooling? Yeah, let the congregation sing. Mm-hmm. Let the choir holler, holy, oh, oh, my mama loves me. She loves me. She get down on her knees and she hugs me. Oh, she loves me. Rocks me like the rock of ages, and she loves me, yes. love me Love me, love me, love me, love me,
4: We are back. That was Loves Me Like a Rock Acoustic by Paul Simon. So we're joined now by our second guest for today's show, Jack Flowers. Jack is a PhD student at Maryland. His mom is Margaret Flowers, who was the Green Party U.S. Senate candidate for Maryland last year. And Jack is now helping start up the Prince George's Green Party chapter. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Hey, thank you. Um, So let's start with that, uh, with the Prince George's Green Party. So how did it come about, or where did the impetus come from for it? Who's involved with it? Um, What kind of timeline are y'all looking at over the next few months?
5: So I haven't talked carefully with them about a timeline yet. Um, As far as it coming about, we've, I think, okay, I think we only had a um, strong MoCo party and a strong Baltimore City party for the last, like, few years. Right. And they've both been running some local candidates. Um, Mainly the Baltimore City party was the one that was running strong local candidates in 2016. But historically now we're seeing, I think, more independence than ever and more, like, disaffectation with the two major parties than ever, so that the Greens are trying to expand into as many other counties as possible. So we've opened up a Baltimore County chapter in the last year. We're starting a PG County chapter, Howard County. There's a group in Allegheny County running candidates. Mm-hmm. And I think they want to expand even further than that, like Cecil, Calvert, et cetera, et cetera. And-
4: so, yeah, let's take a step back then and talk about, I think the Green strategy um, as a whole, as I understand it, based on last year, was you have someone like a Jill Stein run for president, and then that gives the Greens, like, a national platform, but rather than running, I guess, as, like, the legitimate, like, next president of the United States, Jill Stein, it's more giving voice to the local candidates, and then she'll go around the country and campaign with, like, your mom or, like, uh, Joshua Harris in Baltimore and things like that. And then, um, you know, those are are the offices that you're trying to win as a Green. Can you speak to that a little bit? That's
5: exactly what's happening. And, I mean, so, I think... The way we have to, um, I think it makes sense to sort of provide a broader context, because I guess for me, because I was a Bernie Sanders supporter and then a Green Party person after that, mm-hmm. I think the movements are kind of tied together for me in like a lot of ways, and I think that's true for a lot of people. So with the, um, with the Sanders campaign, I saw a, uh, a set of policies, a platform that was like, I think very vitally needs to be implemented, but is not at all being spoken to in most of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. especially in the party leadership. And so after the primary, people were like, okay, Sanders lost. What are we going to do now? Well, let's, according to him, i let's say, let's, let's try and take over the Democratic Party and try and make it, make it like, basically the leadership to endorse our platform. And then if you do that, like, there's a whole idea of, like, well, if you're offering more to these people who are like struggling in the country, then they'll start turning out for Democrats again. I started being like, oh, what's the point? Well, Republicans are bad, but at least I get my guns. And Democrats are bad, too. <laughs> but,
4: yeah. Um, um, that gets to the next question I was going to ask, which was... So, I, mean, this,
5: I, I can keep going for a yeah, while. Yeah, go so, for it, um, go for, sorry. so, yeah, so there's that idea. And so you see, the the, the question now is, like, do you try, to, in order to get that platform out there, do you try to take over the Democratic Party or do you start a new party and get everyone who believes, like, these things and try into that and try and start running on that thing? And that's sort of the the, 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 the the debate that I see happening across the country with people who are, like, interested in, in left-wing politics. Mm-hmm. And so the problem with, like, I think... It's very unlikely. I mean, historically there's only been one successful third party in American history and that was the Republican Party with Abraham Lincoln. But what is more likely to happen is um a third party starts to gain some success like for example the Socialist Party of America had like two elected congressmen in the 2010s and 2020s or 1910s and 1920s, <laughs> I mean.
4: We can only wish.
5: And like yeah, yeah, well maybe <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then a number of um State offices, like I think they controlled all of Milwaukee. But what typically happens then there was the populist party in that era too, and what typically happens is um, you'll see one of the two major parties that there's like an offshoot third party movement. They'll they'll like change their platform a little bit to get those voters back as soon as they become a threat. And like you saw that I think in like nineteen twelve was it 1910, 808, maybe with um the Eugene Debs. Well no 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 because he he was he was pure, pure third party the whole way. But I'm talking about William Jennings Bryan who was the populist uh-huh. party icon and then was incorporated into the Democratic as a Democratic candidate, and then won and lost, but still. Like, and that kind of destroyed the Populist Party movement, and then the Democratic Party became affiliated with the Populist Party movement, kind yeah. of, but then also not really. <laughs> um, but now, so the idea of now is people, they're, 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 their idea is like, oh, we should all join the party, get really active, and maybe we'll take it over and get our platform out there. And that's what a lot of people are doing. You're seeing news of that across the country. Um, but the problem is that the Democratic Party, and that when you're, when you're talking about like a the leadership of an organization is not democratically organized. There's a hierarchy, and they can change the rules to keep you from winning. And we've been seeing that. I mean, did you follow like last spring or whatever it was? The um, what happened in California with the uh, Democratic Party there?
4: I feel like like it's ringing a bell, but describe it for our listeners. Okay, I don't
5: know as much as I. I mean, what like so? All a bunch a bunch of young progressives had this idea they were going to take over the California Democratic Party, mm-hmm. uh, including one guy I know personally. And so they all ran as like state assembly, like. There's like a very democratic system there where you can like run as like a state assembly person for your like area and you represent the Democratic Party in that in that like small region. So a whole bunch of people like did a that. central
4: committee type system. Yeah.
5: Okay. And like so like I think sixty percent of the people who won their won the races for that kind of office in the party were were Bernie people. Okay. And then so they tried to like they had a um, and then there was like an older kind of lot like so then they were trying to get elected. There's they had like like a leader of the party, and there was like a. An old kind of like lobbyist guy on one end, and oh, then right, this right, right. Yeah. other woman whose name I wish I remember. You probably could look it up in like two seconds, yeah. but Kimberly Ellis. I think? Yeah, Kimberly yeah. Ellis. She was on the other end, and they had an extremely close um, election that she lost. And I think it was like part of it was that there's a lot of lobbyists or what, like other like sort of super delegate types that get to vote in the election also, who aren't elected on the ground up. And then all but also, she was kind of alleging there might have been some vote tampering. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly. Obviously, you can't confirm or deny that. But, and then you saw a similar kind of thing in um in Florida, where, I think this guy Brian Battelle did some undemocratic things to get his way into the leadership of the Florida party. Right. So, like, I think I think a pure pure entryism isn't going to necessarily get you what you want. And so, as in, like, no organization is going to give up power without seeing a credible threat. And so, there has to be a credible threat to the Democratic Party power from the left. And I think the Green Party as like a party that has, it's not the only solution, but as a party that has pretty wide ballot access across the country is a good good thing to take over and use for that purpose. Right, And then also hopefully get some independent wins on your own.
4: So, yeah, my next question was going to be if you saw the Green Party as, like, you're talking about how the Democratic Party is fundamentally anti-democratic in its structure and hierarchy, and if the Green Party would be... The viable alternative to that? Or do you see the Green Party as another vehicle for pressuring the Democratic Party? Because I do agree, given like the historical context of the United States and the way winner-takes-all systems work, I don't think we can have more than a two-party system in a long term. Like We can't have three parties competing every year. So I think that, in my opinion, the Green Party serves as... Um, like you said, like a balance on the Democratic party or once they feel a credible threat, they'll be pressured to change their policies to um kind of consume that movement behind it. So speak to that a little bit,
5: yeah, so I kind of i think it's pretty reasonable to remain agnostic about the long term for that because like i again you 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 try to get as strong as possible, you try to win and either you get subs- either your platform gets co-opted and people and you lose support or you actually make successes and start winning things and, yeah. like gain more power and in the meantime, you don't have to think about it that hard, especially because Many of the areas where the Green Party is competitive, and many much of America in general is like, especially due to like gerrymandering stuff, is effectively a one-party like spot. Like, right, Baltimore City is 100% Democrats. Montgomery County is 100% Democrats. PG County, where we're trying to expand, is like a very democratic area as well. And so we're we're not really going to be fighting Re- Republicans there. I mean, Joshua Harris, you mentioned, was a very strong Green Party mayoral candidate for Baltimore who ran in 2016, and he managed to. Get about ten percent of the vote, and he actually did beat the uh, beat the Republican candidate in mm-hmm. votes. So we're effectively already the second party, quote unquote. There, right. but I think what you do is, yeah, you just you really you really do is kind of get as strong as possible, and then either, like, you don't really have to think that hard about what's going to happen as far as will they cop to your platform? Will you manage to keep growing
0: independently? Just try and grow as much as you can. Yeah. So this gets to a criticism I think a lot of people have of third part independent parties in the United States, which is they take away votes from the major party that is most closely aligned to them and i think in the age of trump a lot of people in the democratic party feel really uncomfortable with the idea of an insurgent independent party because for instance in maryland we have a very contentious election to either reelect or replace larry hogan If there was a Green Party candidate who was competitive in that race, I don't think there's any way that Larry Hogan doesn't get reelected. So Baltimore is a great example. D.C. is a great example. Cities like Los Angeles and Seattle, obviously, the Green Party can be competitive there without delivering a seat into Republican hands. But how would you address the concern of not only Democratic leadership, but also Democratic activists that we, especially at this really tumultuous time in national politics, maybe we need to come together in an anti-Trump block and then focus on moving the party to the left. And it's potentially more dangerous to have like a Green Party that's winning 10% of the vote in a lot of these elections where 10% could actually deliver a Democratic seat into Republican hands. So the there's a lot I could say about this. And I kind of want to talk about in
5: some ways so in some ways related to this is like what the issues of, of running as a third party are. But I, I mean, the short answer is that there is no, like, easy confluence between our long-term interests and our short-term interests, and like that's really hard. And I don't actually know what the like solution is. But I think I think you kind of have, to have kind of have to have people doing both things to a certain extent. And I see my role as working for the long-term interests. So um, yeah, once once we get to. Um, Let's see. There's, there's a couple different things I want to address. Um, so as far as far as the uh, party goes, like mo- most of the most of the, um, the Green Party operatives, we, we, they've accepted like, okay, we're totally down with like the uh, the long-term interests. We're going. We we need to show give, give We need to give the, De- the Democratic Party some kind of reason to let in. Well, that's, that's how I think about it. They don't, they just think we want to win, but like we need to get. Yeah, we 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 do exert some kind of leverage over the Democratic Party, and that requires. Being willing to and being like, yes, we are going to spoil your races and we're going to cause some Republicans to win, and that's that's how they see it. I mean, honestly, they're like they're they're even more. When we're talking we're talking about the Maryland governor race, most most of like leadership in the Green Party is even more cynical about that. What they're saying is, so what I think is like I'm like, hey, Ben Jealous is like a strong populist. I think if he went, Hogan's pretty popular. I think if he wins, he'll be able to offer something strong, like something new, and that he's the only one talking about like for example, Medicare for all in Maryland. He's the only one talking about much much of the like very left wing policies that I think would help people immensely. I think if he someone like that who's trying to channel like high turnout within the democratic base is going to have a good chance of winning and maybe he'll spin things around. That's that's, that's like the Sanders perspective, I'd say. Yeah. From a green, they're more like this guy isn't going to win. There's going to be some cynical democrat like Anthony Brown type democrat who wins because they have the most money in the bank and they're going to probably lose to Hogan and we like we're not going to we're not going to interfere with that we're just going to use our governor candidate as a way to get our 1% of the vote which which lets us keep ballot access because ballot access laws are really annoying for third parties you have to either do well in a, a race every a statewide race every 2 years or you have to um you have to get like 20,000 signatures on to maintain ballot access yeah and they're they're going to so they're like okay we'll just we'll just ignore that aspect of the race and we'll use our our guy to try and get in debates try and spread our parties Name and then try and like increase support for our down ballot candidates and for like our message in general. Mm-hmm. But, um, so yeah, I think the people who are concerned that they're going to spoil as far as like statewide races go, as far as like congressional, senate, president, they are right. But it's worth noting that it would be very easy for Democrats to co opt that by just taking on our platform and like ceasing to right. run these like very corporate influence campaigns. And then also. There are a lot of, like, most of the races where we're really trying to, like, win and, like, actually gain some influence are one-party one party regions where they should be letting us in anyway if they really believed in, like, like, they should be doing what we want to do if they really believed in, like, Baltimore City, for example. Mm-hmm.
0: So on the subject of moving to the left or forcing the Democratic Party to move to the left, there is a strong case to be made, though, that, like, you can, you can move too far to the left and lose voters in the center, right? Like, I, I think that if you just had—even in Maryland— um certainly on the gubernatorial level maybe even on the senate level if you just had a green party candidate versus a republican i think the republican would be much more competitive against a green party candidate because a lot of people in the center that often vote for democrats will be turned off by those far left views so how do we balance that that desire to it's it's this weird this weird balancing act between pragmatism and progressivism, almost how we need to say we're going to push the party as far to the left as possible without driving them out of power and like delivering a seat into Republican hands, which oftentimes also causes Democrats to move back to the center. So your your view of this is like how far left do you think Democrats realistically can move without actually losing power?
5: I mean I think it's there's gonna have to be a huge realignment in general because I mean I think you will probably lose some current democratic voters but also but um you also activate a lot of people who are currently not really interested in the system at all yeah mm. you', have, you have, like I mean you've got a huge like like what like a very low percent of Baltimore City is like actually voting every every Senate, every like every election right now and that's probably because in part they don't believe they can change anything to that would help actually help their lives so I think and I think also a lot of the reasons, like, the, the ideas that the Green Party advocates have somewhat lower support than they have right now is because there is no one who's actually trying to sell these. So once you have, like, a, a, lar- a well-funded effort to actually, like, sell people on these ideas, like, who the hell would still believe in trickle-down if there wasn't millions of dollars or billions of dollars being thrown into, like, a narrative that, like, decreasing taxes is somehow going to help the economy, for mm-hmm. example. So I think once you have, like, a, yeah, once you have, like, a large group who's, putting effort into selling people on a, on a platform and a message. I think
0: that platform will obviously gain more support. So kind of circling back to the conversation we were having with Kaylee, you definitely fall more into the camp of if we build it, they will come. We can move pretty far to the left and it'll turn some people off, but it'll activate more people. It'll convince more people. And you think that's the direction? I
5: mean, you have to ground it in like grassroots democracy and mm-hmm. like actual work where you're talking to people every day and you're understanding their concerns and you're basing your platforms off what the people tell you. Yeah. And I think... If you do that, you'll find that, like, their issues there are issues that can be solved by, like, I, again, they, they know what the problems are and if they want to hear solutions. And if you have compelling solutions, you're going to get more people onto your platform as long as they freaking hear about it. Mm.
4: Yeah, I think that um, instead of branding anything in terms of, like, right v. left or, like, political spectrums.
5: Yeah, you don't have to do that.
4: <laughs> I think I think our the green message is based mostly on, like, the idea of political justice more so than anything else. I don't yeah. think it has anything to do with, like... Obviously, they're a left party, like they're filled with leftists and there's like very little like, I don't know, like libertarian sorts or anything like that in the party. But I do think that they have the idealistic set of principles that they're going to abide by, run run on. And, you know, it's hard to compete with that, uh-huh. <laughs> obviously, especially given the the system as it stands, of voter access, getting into debates, just in terms of legitimacy in the eyes of the typical voter um, but I do think that we're at this sort of tipping point where if the Democratic Party fails like in 2018 – this is something I've brought up I think on the past two shows now um, – where we have next year people are going to get gerrymandered – or people are going to get primaried by these Roy Moore types in the GOP, in the House, and the Senate. We're probably going to most likely lose seats in the Senate, maybe keep the House steady for the Democratic Party. Um, And then 2020 comes, like, are we going to get our act together in the Democratic Party to the point where we can be an effective, you know, blockage on that, like, fascistic uprising in the United States? Because I don't know if we will be, and if we fail... Like we're going to be turning very much towards like this radical politics that people are very turned off by at the moment. And I don't people don't want to get there, but I don't see anyone compromising now so that we can avoid it, if that makes sense. Yeah,
5: I see. I see. There there there'll always be some good people who are trying to fight that in the Democratic Party. But you'll also have like I think you have a leadership that's like totally stumbling forward and that's not going to change. Yeah, Um, I guess one other thing I. Kind of want to talk about is what it takes. I think it takes a lot. Like I think I think a reasonable criticism of a third party is that they can't win. Yeah. And that's like the one I, one of the ones I see the most often. I feel I feel like if if we start getting people in office, then you start like saying, oh, well, this is actually a viable alternative, and you start getting more support. And but it's actually extremely hard to win. And I, I think maybe talking about the mechanisms for that might be important. Um, I'm trying to remember what else. I, it's one other thing I was just thinking about. Well,
0: but. to that point about building vi- a viable multi-party system, you look at most other countries in the Western world, and you see that there are more than two parties. Yeah. Apart from, apart from the UK and and certain countries, you look at Germany, you look at France, well, used to be in France, but there there are many more parties than two solely viable parties. And you have center-left, left, far-left, far left, and they form a coalition, or the same thing happens on the right. And I think a lot of that comes not only because of a different state of dialogue in the country, but different political norms and different political institutions. Yeah, I'm really p- parliamentary excited. Democracy or whatever. Yeah, parliamentary proportional democracy. Proportional representation. Um, that's all it is, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Proportional representation, like in Germany, you can vote not only for your local representative, but but also for the party that you want to represent you. And then some seats are allocated accordingly. So you could say, hey, this is a really competitive election. I'm going to vote for the Democrat. But I also want the Green Party to have some representation in Congress. Mm -hmm. And so the Green Party, you would vote for them as proportional representation. They would get some seats or just changing from our ultimately just unbelievably archaic First past the post system to a single transferable vote system, so you could say, "Hey, I like the Green Party, but I don't want the my vote for the Green Party to potentially cost a Democratic candidate an election. So I'll vote for the Green Party first. If the Green Party candidate doesn't win, then my vote will transfer it to the Democratic Party, so that we can make sure that at least somebody on the left wins." So a lot of what you're talking about, I think, has to has to be accomplished via some way of changing our political institutions, changing those laws. And luckily, Maine recently passed a law via, via ballot and initiative. And then for, they repealed it. and then, it. No, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> like, well, so it's before the state Supreme Court, right? I think or, it already Did they it, repeal I think they it? Already, I they already I dropped it. Sure the they already couple dropped of it. Weeks. <laughs> Yeah, so that's something I'm really excited about. Apparently, it's unconstitutional, at least in Maine. So that's great. But
5: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Of, so like, I have I have two sort of attacks on that kind of one. The one the one is that like there is no like I, I think that the majority of Americans clearly want to change our system to make it suck less, <laughs> but like there's no political will for it. There's like right. no, no one who's actually winning under that system wants to change it, and it's probably not going to change anytime soon. what
4: what Democrat who's like maintaining the two party system would be like? Yeah, let me fuck up this Oh, crap shouldn't have said that word uh, you said it was be me
5: but it was you it,
4: we were trying but i failed um the democrats aren't going to be like coming coming in and saying okay i'm going to stop uh the system that keeps me in power like they they have no there's no impetus on them for them to do it especially because it's not a very democratic lowercase d system or party as it stands so if there was a will behind the the party membership and then they came into power and said okay we're going to you know, be a little benevolent and, and allow third parties to rise up because it would be good for our democracy. They would be giving up their own power, so I don't yeah. see that as happening. I think okay.
5: I there's, think there's, there's t- more. There's more to this though. There's more to this though. There's a lot more I want to say on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so first of all, yeah. So it's not. I I don't think it's going to happen. And so there there are. That's like you can't. You have, to, you have to work with the system you have, but there are ways to work with the system you have. And I want to talk about like I guess what what like why it's why it's so hard and what some of the models are. But then sec- first of all like. As, like so, so on that point, my mom ran for senate again last in, in Maryland last yes in twenty sixteen, and um, her points on this topic is that first of all, even if you get rid of the um, even if you get rid of the ranked uh, first past the post, there's so many other obstacles. There is the um, the huge there's going to be a huge fundraising deficit because there's no there's a blackout on media coverage because the Democrats control like the Baltimore Sun and et cetera, et cetera, all of the major ways you find out about candidates and the way they're written about. I mean, you guys saw how Bernie was written about in the Washington Post and right. for example and. How they kind of limited is their, limited his time. So you get that, like she, she there was like debate exclusion where there were three candidates on the ballot and like they would consistently like she'd qualify for a debate and then they'd like someone on the board would be like oh we don't want the third party here and they like, they'd change the criteria at the last minute to exclude her and they had she'd have these like week long back and forths where they like yeah constantly like argue like making it more and more impossible for her to get on by changing the way they like they qualify people for it. And There was like actually you can find a good video on the internet where she actually crashed the uh, University of Baltimore debate and like yeah. a pretty viral moment last year.
4: And um, I remember CNN reported on that, but they didn't even say her name in, yeah, in the yeah, headline. Yeah. I was like, no, just like, you're covering her, but you're just like, purposely avoiding putting in the relevant information. Yeah, so there's
5: media exclusion, there's a fundraising deficit where we can't really, the way most people fundraise right now is by like, big money donors which are not gonna support our policies. Right. And I mean, you, hopefully you can move to a, a grassroots fundraising, but that only worked for Bernie because they thought Bernie had a chance of winning. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you have to prove you can win first within that system. And then, um, also, one thing that doesn't get talked about as much, but is actually pretty important, is who controls the uh, the uh, voting booths. Um, like, it's very it's very possible to I think uh, have an election be swayed by by the way the votes are counted. Like, you saw that with Al Gore is like an obvious example where like they did the full recount. It turns out if the full recount had been done, he would have won Florida. But he he only asked for a partial recount. And they denied the partial recount, and under those two criteria, he he, could, he didn't win Florida. Mm-hmm. And then like more recently. Um, let's. There was a. Do you guys know Sherry Honkala? No. She was Jill Stein's vice president in 2012, and she recently ran for like a state delegate seat in Philadelphia, which you was know, like a special election in March. A special election that happened because a corrupt Democrat was like removed from office and had to be replaced. And then, and then it got really crazy because the new Democrat they got they they had they put in to replace him or they so they ran to replace this this corrupt person who got ousted was didn't live in the district, so they were ousted and then like, the third person was like came in behind and like had to run a writing in campaign and then the green party they should have they should have on the ballot themselves but somehow the party didn't co- coordinate with the campaign and say this is our candidate so they they weren't like on the ballot by the deadline either so you have like a write in race between a democrat and a green with a republican who is who like is on the ballot but no one's going to vote for and there was like so i i drove up, drove up to Canvas for them on the, on election day and like yeah like early march and they there was like they they both 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 campaigns had stamps that were like, they were giving to voters like hey stamp my name in if to write it in in so case you spell our name wrong, <laughs> but um, then they, were, they had like Democrats like all working the polls though so they like they were like they were like letting Democratic poll workers in but not letting Green poll workers into like the offices they were like they start they started confiscating stamps pretty early in the day like I think the Republican issued some injunction but then like there was like strong like heavy belief that the uh, Democratic stamps were not being confiscated but the Greens were and then. We thought we had a really strong like following, but it came out like. So that then there was like a like they, they had like a four day period between when the votes were count like were done and like when they released the totals, and there was like they got like thirty percent they said or something ridiculous mm-hmm. like that. And, like I, I find it hard to believe, but they really did that badly. And then there's another another thing where um, this guy uh, Matthew Gonzalez almost won the uh, mayor of San Francisco in two thousand three. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. So he actually won on election day votes, but. He lost in the absentee ballots. He lost, six, he, uh, the Democrat got 65% of the absentee ballots. Jack, votes. I don't mean
4: to cut you off, but we are at the five o'clock mark. No, so we're so going to have.
5: There's so much more I can say, <laughs> but that's all right.
4: <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back on at some point. Um, well, thank you for joining us, Jack. Um, this has been Revolution on the Air. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you for joining us today.
5: Mm-hmm. Thanks.
2: Don't know what they do with their lives But me, I'm still on the road Ahead for another joint We always infuse feel same. Like we just saw it from a different point